As we face the threat of another mass extinction, and while we are already experiencing the consequences of a changing climate, what would it take for us to all transform our relationship with nature? In what ways can our existing and emerging environment movement change how they work to help them make this happen? What new ideas and practices could help? Today we talk with Sam Rye from Conservation Volunteers Australia. Sam has had a career exploring environmental regeneration and building movements with decentralised leadership. His current role as Manager of Communications and Marketing puts him at the centre of conservation practice in Australia. Today we talk about how he got there and the qualities and practices needed for a modern movement for nature. He unpacks tricky ideas like systems thinking and complexity and introduces the power of citizen science as a form of movement building. He shares new and old thinking gleaned from across the world that has inspired him in his work. I met Sam in the Learning Change Network. For more on that, visit www.ageoftransition.org. Come along and imagine the different ways we need to be to build a different world. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. So Sam, welcome to Changemaker Chats. A delight to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here. Excellent. So, look, there are lots of ways that people try and change, make change in the world, have an impact. How would you describe what you do? What change and hope do you try to generate with your work? Mm, yeah, I um, I guess my, my real hope is that we can change our relationship with nature. So, at the moment, I'm really, really trying to work on uh, building the ability to let things spark and um, support people to take action for nature in all sorts of different ways. Wow, that's a pretty big and important question at this point in time. I guess the thing that I'm interested in is why. Like what are the key points in your life? And don't feel like you have to start now. Let's go all the way back to wherever it works for you. Why have you chosen this as the the contribution that you would like to make? Yeah, well, um, I think to some extent, I probably uh, I, I do have to go back to my early life. I was very fortunate, very privileged to to travel a fair bit in my life and and see some amazing places and meet some amazing people. And I guess that really just gave me a, a love for the world, a love for can you for think nature? Of one? To think of uh, one. 
Yeah, I, I was. Um, so I have family roots um, back to Africa in in Zambia, and I was uh, when I was twelve. My folks, who'd saved up for God knows how many years, took us over to to see my uncle and my cousins and everyone over in uh, Zambia. And you know, my mum always tells me this story of when I was standing on the beach. Uh, we'd also gone down to South Africa and just sort of looking out to sea and just sort of seemingly in this little world of my own and saying, you know, I'm going to come back here someday and I, I you know, I want to help in some way. So, um, you know, I was super lucky to, to see some incredible, incredible parts of the world, the Victoria Falls and, you know, the Luanga Valley and various places. But I grew up in London, so I also was able to travel around Europe a little bit. And, you know, England is a beautiful country as well in its own way. So, so yeah, those, those formative kind of experiences of just, you know, learning to see the world and realize that where you grow up isn't, it's not the same everywhere around the world was a, a really important learning for me. But I, I think, you know, jumping forward a little bit, I, I sort of had my early life crisis uh, when I was in London. I had, I guess, a, a moment where I really felt like I had to move out of London to explore who I could be in different contexts and different countries. And I had a growing environmental climate awareness at the time. And so I... I, I headed for Borneo with uh, a sustainable development charity. We were building a bridge in in the jungle there, and that was a really formative experience as well in its own way. It, you know, seeing the just like the sheer abundance of life, even in a square meter in front of you in the jungle, is is phenomenal. And I guess that experience really reminded me what what I cared about and what what was important to me, which was, you know, protecting and restoring nature. And it's really like reckoning with like, why are we continuing to make such bad decisions for like life beyond humans? Why, like, why are we making those decisions? We know that they're not, um, they're not serving us. But I guess the, you know, seeing, yeah, as we came out of that, um, uh, that, that jungle protected, jungle zone the logging and palm oil plantations start right at that boundary and you know this is the most biodiverse place in the world above above water so it was a really stark visual reminder of of what's at stake for me and yeah and i guess also what people can do like if if you can draw a line and protect the environment on one side and rip it to shreds on the other side people's relationship with those different plots of land matters. Mm. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think the the question of like what, what brings us to the point that we are logging and, you know, setting up oil palm plantations where, you know, literally only two species can live, which are pretty much rats and snakes. So, yeah, like that, that was sort of very fascinating and, and that brought me – uh, so I, I sort of kept kept traveling. I was like, I don't want to go back to London. There's wasn't that there was nothing for me there, but I was starting to learn who I could be uh, in other places. So, how old were you during this time? Uh, I was 25 at the time. 
yeah yeah so it's it's always in a, a formative time of life i think but um can be was for you it can it seem was for me right yeah. yeah 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 um so like so i came to australia at that point um for a year and started working with uh, conservation volunteers australia i was running a youth program we were you know, restoring the beaches of Melbourne and the grasslands. And it, it just felt right. It felt good to have my fingers in the soil and, you know, working with people, being able to talk to them about what was going on for them, what was changing for them in this sort of context of the work that they were doing now. I stayed here for a year and then conservation volunteers actually offered me a role over in New Zealand. So I moved to the the wild west coast of the South Island. I probably should have looked how many people lived there before <laughs> taking that role. But there was 23 people in the village that I was living in. So I felt like I was about as far as you could get from London um, in, in, yeah, in mentality by that point. So, yeah. And so... And what was your role in in New Zealand? Like, what, what what were you doing there? Was it in what way was it different to what you were doing previously? It was really fascinating. So um, we taken over a piece of land that was handed back by a a mining company that. Uh, they'd absorbed this piece of land in a big merger and they didn't want to do anything with it. They wanted to hand it back to the community and to the government to be protected uh, because that's what the community said they wanted. So we, as a sort of third party, they couldn't give it straight back to the government until it was restored. We were doing a sort of 100,000 tree replanting project. So the Punakaiki Coastal Restoration Project was the name. So I was the first team leader on the ground and we had international and local volunteers coming in and planting trees and weeding and, you know, just basically restoring these paddocks to beautiful native rainforest, which was just incredible to to be there day in, day out, living in a little shack built by hippies um, just above the project site. And yeah, that, that, that was about two years of my life out on that project site was was phenomenal. It certainly sounds like one of those skills that's going to be needed again, restoring mining sites. I'm feeling like that's yeah. going to be in demand at some point again. It might be. It might yeah, be. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. I mean, I guess the fascinating thing though for me was like it it I, again, I, I really loved the work and it felt so right and working with people um who were going to go back to their homes all over the world was was really interesting, but there was there was this time that I vividly remember, like I was, I was you know, my knees in the mud, and my thing, like I was planting a a harakiki, which is sort of a flax bush, and I was just like, as fast as we can plant these trees, people can chop them down. So there there was just this this turning point where I, I started asking like how, how does change happen and like what's my role in making that change and how like how do we sustain change over time and like that that basically made me leave that sector because it 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 wasn't like it wasn't the vehicle for those questions at that time that is really interesting so it was like this dawning a realization that the system is much bigger than the specific action you can take. Exactly. And even though like there's there's a really important role in doing that work and doing that restoration, there's other forces at play, right? Like there's other things that you need to pay attention to. And yeah, for me, like I, I wanted to know more about that. I was drawn to that question 
New Zealand's a fascinating country for, um, you know, so much of it was so new. The sort of bicultural aspect was really interesting to me and being exposed to sort of indigenous wisdom and principles and wanting to learn more about that. So I guess from, from there, I, I sort of, yeah, just, just everything changed. I moved to Wellington, fell in with a bunch of really interesting folk who were sort of coming through the sustainability climate change space. I guess that at that time we sort of founded a couple of different sort of networks or I sort of got involved in something called Intersect and something called Regeneration, which was a youth version. Uh, and then we founded something called Inspiral that some people might know about, which is kind of a collective of change makers in New Zealand looking at, I guess, what does decentralized leadership look like? And, you know, how do we, how do we build new social enterprise ventures? And what's the role of technology and the role of open source? So it was a really like it was just a melting pot to, you know, explode your brain and kind of start <laughs> to um, really be able to grapple with, learn new skills and grapple with all of these big questions in uh, in a community of people who really felt supportive and on that journey together. I think it was a yeah. really important part for me. So. so the creativity in the practice, building off and extending you from the creativity of the ecological systems that you'd been working to regenerate. Well, that's mm. metaphoric. Well done. That was that <laughs> good. And what did you learn out of that practice, like about this sort of technological, social, creative, decentralized leadership work? Well, I guess that was, yeah, that was the most fascinating. It's it's really hard to pull it apart, right? Cool. Like, because it was. Yeah, it was, yeah. And it's probably not fair to try, right? It's yeah. Way. So I guess like that, that alchemy led to sort of my, my practice now. But I guess there was a couple. So there was a couple of threads. So there was, first of all, there was, I guess, the, the sense of community and retreat and space to work through things together within Spiral and being on that sort of peer journey, peer learning, and exploring a lot of facilitation at that time and design practice. How do we, how do, we do collective action was really one of those, those sort of big questions. And then off the back of that, I sort of got involved in co-founding a, a social enterprise, uh, which was a tech startup focused on local food systems. So a lot of my work in that was really about building community and building a sort of a field of people around the world who are interested in local food. How do we do organic box schemes and community-supported agriculture? It was fascinating time. And then after a little while, as sometimes these things do, that sort of came to an end for various reasons. But startups, what can you say? But, but that then led uh, on to doing, I guess, some of the work I'm most proud of in my life, which was the life hack work, which was was really a social lab looking at youth mental health. And we brought together young people, technologists, experts in mental health and well-being, entrepreneurs, uh, and we're looking at how do we, you know, how do we support people? Initially it was about sort of the technology focus. How do you know how do we build technology to support young people with their mental health and well-being? But after a time, I guess we as as we sort of reckoned with this sort of narrow focus on technology, we became convinced that actually the real work was about connecting people within the the various systems that support young people and knitting that system or like weaving that system together a little bit more so that really people got people knew each other better. 
it, w- it became much more about the relational fabric, the relational field of that system and how how those people related with one another. So how do you take a school teacher and someone who designs services for the you know government's mental health DHBs? How do, how do you like what would happen if they knew each other? And they were able to collaborate better. So there was some skills building and there was, you know, teaching people, I guess, about participatory design and the potential of technology. But really, it was it was that relational stuff that was that was the lasting effect. Yeah. Wow. And it's the last thing people especially government, think of, right? The government tends to think of how to count it. How do we count what we're doing well or what we're doing badly? Whereas that relational piece is so qualitative. It's so, it's hard to measure, but it's so potent and it lasts. Yeah. And I I mean, you know, like how do we count it and what is the quality? I think those, those two questions were fascinating and they, they sat side by side for me and we were sort of really delved into it because we were, we're fascinated by the impact evaluation. We wanted that. We wanted the, not necessarily the counting it, but we wanted the- made a difference. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And like, (laughs) could we make a difference in a different way? Could we, like, do we replicate this impact? Do we scale the impact? Do we, um, there's there's so many different ways of going broader and deeper with that impact. So we were interested in the, the sort of always on continuous research impact evaluation side of things because we, this is sort of really where the complexity stuff started to form for me of, you know, if we make the same intervention or the same, you know, we, we develop the same technology and two different young people in two different contexts use it, then they're probably going to have different results. But actually, if the same person uses it on a different day, it can still have a different result, right? Like, because the context around them had changed. So that was really fascinating to me because it sort of countered the way that funding worked and that people were always telling us that you should just scale up a piece of technology. And we were like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yeah. Like, we, we need to kind of talk about what it means to scale things up and what does it mean if that goes into a different context and for what context is that right? So that was a really, yeah, a really interesting time. So that impact evaluation piece was fascinating, but also the, the, the intangible qualities of the work that we were doing was really fascinating to us. So we actually did a lot of like documentary filmmaking to try and draw out the the stories and the narratives and the patterns of what was going on there as well so yeah learned learned a lot in that time and you know i i guess the the most enduring thing for me is that i know that the people who came through our programs are still talking to each other they're still supporting each other like i saw a fundraiser for one of their new projects that's you know multiple years later but they were fundraising for each other to to give someone a leg up to get their their new well-being venture started and this is like four or five years later so it's just like that's the relational piece to me like that's more enduring than anything else that that we could have delivered in that much more so than an app that will go out of date in two years you know and so now you have moved back to Australia and you're working back in nature, having had all of these other experiences. Tell us, you know, why did you make that choice? Why did you come back to to build a movement for nature? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wish it was it was quite that sort of simple um, <laughs> in oh. some ways. So um, I guess the, the quick backstory is my first son was born. Uh, and my, my wife's an Australian, so we came back to be close to family. So I guess, you know, following that relational thread, we, we realized how important that support network was. So we, we came back uh, for that reason. And so I was, I was doing a master's of design, which was looking at this question of how do we um, increase the sort of social and environmental impact of conservation projects. So I was still, still kind of tinkering with that question. But um, the real sort of, I guess, uh, thrust to come back into the environmental sector was losing my dad three years ago, very suddenly. And it was one of those introspective life moments where you're just like, what, what am I doing? What's important? What, what matters? And so it was actually just before all the bushfires happened, I was sort of starting to look around to get back into the environmental space, the biodiversity loss or climate change I was kind of like, either of those is the, the right place to be right now. And, you know, finding Conservation Volunteers Australia was hiring and into uh, an interesting role. It was a communications and marketing manager role. Uh, so it sort of felt like taking a bit of a step back. But I realized that actually this wasn't the old organization I'd worked for, you know, in those paddocks, planting that harakiki, thinking about, you know, what, what, how do we, how does change happen? This was a CVA that was actually looking to completely transform the organization into a force that could mobilize and activate a million people in the next five years to make a difference for nature. So that was it. I was in. I was like, yes, <laughs> I'm on that mission. How do I, how do I help? And so like, let's talk about this. A million people activated to support and change relations with nature. Like what does a movement like that look like? I'm sure you've spent thinking time on this. Tell us what your thoughts are about how you bring all of that experience, the relational experience, the systems experience to bear on this question. We're, we're still relatively early in this this journey. So I guess these are sort of the thinking that's going to get tested over the next few years, but it's already starting to get tested. The first most important thing for me is, so we're, we're trying to shift away from this old model of just providing a volunteer experience where people come out, they plant a tree, they go home again. It's It's a very narrow field for people who want to take action in some way, right? So not everybody is able to get to that place. Not everybody's um, able to give that time. They've got kids, whatever it might be. So we're really looking at like, how do you massively expand the opportunities for people to take action? So are those online opportunities? Are they offline opportunities? Are they, to give you a few ex kind of examples that we've been thinking about, so we've got camera traps all around some of our project sites that give us photos and videos when animals kind of roam through those areas. And knowing what is in those sites is really important. Now, you try and get an environmental conservation organization funded to do like all that cataloging. It just doesn't work. The Australian Museum has built a platform called Digivol where people can jump in and do that in their own time, you know, 30 minutes in the evening. They can go in there, tag their koalas and their bandicoots and their, their echidnas, and that, that provides a massive citizen science yeah. um, force, right? So citizen science is going to be a really big part of where we're going um, because it provides both online and offline opportunities. So people can also grab an app and do the Frog ID app, 
where they you know like out here i'm out in the yarra ranges an hour and a half out of melbourne we've got heaps of frogs around i don't know what any of them are but with this it's like have you ever used shazam the the oh, yeah, yeah. workout it's like <laughs> yes. shazam for frogs right like so <laughs> You literally record um, what you're hearing by a pond or just like from your balcony for 30 seconds, and then it will give you a list of things that it thinks are, are there. And then it will also go off to the Australian music, uh, Museum staff who know exactly what they're listening to because they're frog experts, and they'll send you an email saying, you know, here's your spotted brown tree frog, here's your common eastern froglets, here's your, you know, so like it's a great way of people being out in the field, using a bit of technology to, um, to again, provide a lot more data for, uh, for scientists to do their work better. And it's such a good example of design thinking or co-design, you know, where mm. actually the knowledge can't be just produced by researchers alone. It's produced in, uh, through a partnership between mm. people and researchers. That's where the edge, that's where we need to be to really to have new thinking, to do new things, to have more, to build a movement of a million people because actually the people, they benefit too because actually they're doing something that matters rather than being part of, uh, just being part of a, an experience directed by others. They're, they're mm. leading their own experience. Wow. And, I, I, you know, I was I was really inspired through my master's. There was um, one thing that I read from a designer in the UK called John Thackerer, who's, who's very big on, I guess, environmental sustainability, climate change, those sorts of things. So his design work is often kind of like regenerative culture sort of work. And so he always talked about like designing people back in mm. to that process. So like that's really stayed with me over the last few years. And I, like, I really love that as an idea. It's like, do we want to have just sensors everywhere that are picking up frogs all the time? It's like, well, maybe if there's no one around and like, you really need that data, but like designing people back into that experience where they're connecting and observing and experiencing we know that the challenge isn't actually having the data. The challenge is like the decisions that we're making with that data. So how do we shift people's relationship with nature through these sorts of experiences? That, like, that's the work for me at the moment. So, you know, for and like another example of how we're looking to create additional opportunities, of course, we're still going to do tree planting. Of course, we're still going to be out there weeding and, you know, doing track building and those important conservation things. But we're just in a process of writing up a sort of like a seven day journaling exercise. Uh, so we do there's a project that we do around ocean litter um, and plastics uh, called Sea to Source. We want people to be thinking about their relationship with water and to what goes in that water and to the decisions that we make about that water. So this is like quite left field for a conservation organization is like, oh, well, let's actually address people's relationship with nature through journaling. And we can engage the, the writers and the artists through this sort of process or people who just like, you know, doodling in their sketchbooks. We could build a bit of a social layer to this so people can share their journey as they're doing it. Yeah, I felt like I think these kinds of things are the opportunities where this isn't really about technology at all. Like, yes, technology can facilitate it, but this is about our reflection, our reckoning, our our fun as well, like being by the water, thinking about your relationship with a couple of prompts as to, you know, what's 
you know, yeah, I just I think that's fun and exciting. So because when I hear like when you describe it to me, it's like it's not just about the what the data. It's about the how, how mm. it's collected and how people are engaged in the process and how that that is transformative. And that that's a theme that echoes across different social movements in, and the, the environment movement is using it as really interesting to me in part because I think that that is something the environment movement traditionally has done pretty badly, you know, yeah. to be honest. Like it's been about how to save this forest or this species, but not how to build a movement of people. The focus was always on object, like not objectifying, with love, caring for and conserving the natural environment. But social movements are built when the relationship is with a large number of people at the same time. And I think that, that that's what we need now. We need, we need environment, an environment movement that is actively thinking about the interface between people and creating, you know, you talk about your experience of caring for the environment, having these extraordinary immersion moments in Zambia and Borneo. Um, now, not everyone's going to be able to have those moments, but the capacity to reflect on and experience the natural environment, touch it and and understand its power, that is what seems to change that relationship. Mm, yeah. It's so exciting to see the, the conservation movement in Australia, the environment movement in Australia, really creating those experiences for people. I, I I completely agree. I think that like the, the what it like yeah what is the quality of the experience that you have in those places is so vital and is a big part of how we're sort of reshaping CBA so that you know like there's there's an opportunity. It's like it's like it's nothing to do with tree planting. Even it's like we will we'll put on photographic walks, let's say, and you will have an expert guide with you interpreting that landscape like bringing it to life, telling you about the stories of the land, telling you about the the species that live there. Like we, we're so disconnected from seeing the landscape as alive, seeing the trees mm. as alive, seeing the rocks as alive. You look at the amazing, rich cultural history of Indigenous Australia and how the the landscape was, you know, people belonged to the landscape and they, everything has spirit, right? Like, the rocks have spirit, the stars have spirit, the trees have spirit, the water has spirit. If we stop thinking of things as objects that are lifeless, we realize, you know, the the, the sort of growing understanding over the last 10 years or 20 years of like the wood wide web, the the um, the interconnection of our forests under the, yes. the soil, the, <laughs> talking to each other, they're they're organizing, like through organizing. These, exactly. You know, like they they are there. There's the ability for a forest to know that there's a bushfire coming and draw down their resources to save themselves. Like that's because other trees are telling. Like you know, this is. This is well-proven science that this happens. So once we start, I guess, like once we ch- we we start to understand our our world like that, our living world like that, as a living world, you c- I don't think you can go back. Like you can't make decisions as if you know that tree doesn't 
live. It's not inert. Yeah. So I, I, I find that fascinating. And I think to your point of, you know, when you, you start to build critical mass of people, of, of relationships, we're, we're just starting on this really exciting journey of what we're calling our nature ambassadors. So groups of people who are coming together probably around a topic. So we're, our first one is around the Sea to Source project that I was talking about. We're likely to have, I think it's about 100 people across eight different locations in Australia in the next six months. So we're just about to start recruiting for that program where people can come in. It's a bit of a leadership journey. It's lots of the stuff that we were just talking about, but also then becoming a bit of an ambassador in their own community for this kind of work. And then over time, obviously, we're going to be able to build the opportunity for those ambassadors to become mentors for the next cohorts coming along. So very well known, you know, movement building strategies, but I don't see it happening in the environmental space, in the sort of nature protection space in Australia. So I'm really excited about that. We'll have another one coming up around bushfire resilience and recovery in New South Wales and Queensland. So there's the next year, like all of these things are starting to coalesce and the seeds you've planted are growing, Sam. The yeah. seeds are growing. <laughs> it's such a great, great metaphor. Metaphors. <laughs> so I want to add in the piece about systems and complexity because you know we can plant as many trees as we want. We can all um, rec- have a recognition moment at that smaller scale that 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 things are alive and that that we want to be in relationship and a relationship of mutual conservation and protection. But you're but there are systems beyond whatever one individual does. The, the, the systems in our ecology, right, that, that are magnificent. And there are social, economic, political systems that also play on what we do. How does a systems, how does systems thinking, how does an understanding of complexity, how do you bring that into this work? Mm, yes. So this this is something that has just been a fascinating sort of 10 years of uh, trying to understand Trying to, trying to understand complexity. So I think the the simplest terms that I, f- I find useful for understanding complexity to begin with is, you know, really it's about the interconnection and the intermingling of elements within the system. So that could be people, could be people in nature, it could be people in cities, it could be, could be our governments and our communities. Like, I guess with COVID, I think people have finally started to understand how interconnected and how dynamic things are. So as an example, when COVID hit, we shut our borders and now we don't have a supply of certain kind of uh, products and fruits and, you know, all sorts of things that we were used to having. That's because of that interconnection in our systems. So that's sort of the first point. And then the next point is like, is the dynamics between those those interconnections. So when in conversation, even when we're talking, we affect each other's uh, ideas, right? So, and this happens at every scale as well. So, if I drive down the road, someone who was crossing the road is going to not cross the road at that point because I'm driving past. Otherwise, they'll get hit. So, those are very simple examples, but this is going on everywhere, every day, constantly. We are constantly affecting one another and changing the system through our own behaviors, actions, and likewise, those people are changing us. So we're responding to the weather, we're responding to the economic climate, we're responding to what's going on in our community, our households, our kids that are at home with us during COVID. You know, all of all of that is sort of um, that dynamic picture that sort of makes up complexity. So I guess, like, how do you take that and apply it to something like movement building 
I guess for me, it's like, how do we just recognize that's always happening? So our, our general way of responding to complexity has to be to try and control it and to try and manage it, I think. It's this, this kind of strategic planning idea that we can write a plan for five years and that we have some kind of idea that we can predict what's going to happen in the world over those five years. So we're going to assign all of our resources and all of our, you know, our plans are going to have to follow that, whether they like it or not, for the next three to five years. We now know that's completely crazy, right? Like we've we've known for a while that 90% of strategic plans fail and given it give them long enough and all of them will fail because you just can't predict the future. So at a at an organizational level. I think like when you bring this complexity worldview in and you start organizing differently, you become you you have to become more adaptive and responsive as an organization. So you can't write a five-year plan and predict it. You actually have to write a series of experiments and engage in continuous learning and adaptation based on what you're finding. We now don't have <laughs> so we've got like you know, we we want to engage a million people over five years. We don't know exactly how that's going to happen. So we need to create experiments that help us learn. So do people love these journals and these reflections? Or do they actually really like the citizen science? Or do they want to do more tree planting? Or do they want, like, that is a very, you know, it's a foggy forest to walk through. You you know, you you can't see that far into the future. So this complexity approach is like really about do doing something to learn rather than analyzing it to predict it. It seems like a nuance, but actually it's quite an important shift in how organizations work. Of course it is because the practice of uh, you're not saying that things not turning out as you planned is failure. You're saying things not turning out as you planned is learning. Mm. That's a totally different perspective to bring on everything that we do. I think that I can see, I mean, I see it in the corporate world all the time, but you can see it in not-for-profits too, where there's this sort of rig, where rigidity and, and sort of uh, assumption and failure are conceived of as negative, whereas actually, you know, that sort of letting go that the idea that we know the answers and just getting into the learning is seems mm. healthier. It also seems healthy to me that you invest in the people, right? Like, because the people making those decisions, doing the work, your leaders, your volunteers, and your staff are are so important in an environment where you can't predict the outcomes because the, the resources of the, the, those people bring to the problems is probably your biggest resource in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I think and and the culture that you set up for them is the it's the key. Is like, well, what are the processes and the structures and the the rituals that we have as an organization which support learning. And don't support like, you know, perverse incentives of like over-reporting your, your impact because, you know, you said that you said in your strategic plan that you were going to engage a thousand people. So, oh, look, I've engaged a thousand people like that. <laughs> that doesn't help, but it's very easy to fall into those traps. So how do you reward people who are genuinely embracing that learning are like, oh, well, look, we only engaged 500 people. But actually, there's these three insights that we generated from that. So I think if we combine those things next we and we develop something else that, you know, another different project or a different kind of way of engaging people, 
I think we could probably like engage 2,000 people with that approach. There's, there's a lot of organizations grappling with these sorts of questions about culture and structure and, and learning at the moment. And of course, we um, first met through a whole conversation about learning change and how, how social learning can, can support those sorts of change processes. So I think, I think it's a really fascinating area at the moment. And yeah, looking, looking forward to being able to contribute more into that field as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one more question on this and then before we finish, which is, um, how so the systems they, they like this teaching about how goal setting works and the interdeterminacy of the environment that we're in and is one piece I, I, the second thing i'm interested in is how it helps us not see things in silos mm. how conservation we don't just conserve and regenerate our environment because we think trees are pretty but actually it helps our health it helps how we live, it helps um, create restorative public space. It changes so many other things. You know, it's not in a box. It's not a silo. It's interconnected with how we think about the world and other practices in the world. How are you able to bring that into um, your work on conservation? Ooh, yeah, this is, this is, I guess, one of my, my most exciting sort of areas that we're beginning to move into now. So that plurality of the value created is so vital to being able to communicate to whether that's to the volunteers who are coming out and planting those trees or whether it's to the funders who are looking at ways to address different issues, whether it's to to your own staff just to, to help them understand their own impact. So I guess there's a bit of work that's been bubbling away in Europe for quite a few years now around nature-based solutions. So this language came out around helping especially sort of the municipalities, the cities in Europe address the multiple types of challenges that they're facing in urban environments. So, for example, heat islands, when the the city heats up over the day, we know that we're in a warming climate, direct sunlight onto concrete generally creates an oven and then let that heat keeps going through the night, right? So we don't even cool down overnight like we used to. But they're also facing health problems from asthma and they're facing uh, challenges around stormwater as their sort of, you know, hard surfaces are just moving into the grey infrastructure of storm drains and a lot of the grey infrastructure is starting to age and break down and is actually not very climate resilient, we're starting to find. So, well, people were just like, well, plant more trees, <laughs> right? Like plant more trees, plant more. Uh, we need to bring our wetlands back uh, because there are, you know, water filtration, they slow down the, the water. So this was kind of really interesting because, well, it's doing these one or two activities and potentially replacing some of this gray infrastructure with green infrastructure, trees, grasses, whatever it might be, it's going to deliver on those health outcomes. It's going to deliver on the stormwater. It's going to deliver on your heat island effect. And it doesn't cost that much money. It certainly costs less than a lot of the gray infrastructure being entirely replaced. So I think as as the science has caught up with what a lot of people have always known about those sort of nature ecosystem services, that's sort of starting to change. So we, we're just about to deliver a or start delivering a project around wetlands all around the country, which is actually looking at their carbon 
drawdown potential. So it's actually about blue, so blue carbon, teal carbon. Some people might have heard through the 2040 film, the likes of help can store huge amounts of carbon faster than trees. So they're one of our greatest assets in the fight against climate change. They're also really great for protecting our coasts because they actually, those mangroves, they break up the waves that are going to be increasing over the the coming years with climate change. So it makes us more resilient. It also cleans the water. It also gives us great biodiversity values and leisure values. I mean, you look at the fisheries, they're reliant on where the fish spawn, which is in our wetlands. Um, So we've only got a couple of percent of our wetlands left here in Australia. We need to restore the ones that are are already here and and start regenerating those as well. So it's just like one example, but I think this recognition and trying to fund things through multiple sources where one sort of action can actually provide those multiple solutions is is a really core part of how how we can start to address some of this. So final question, final question. So I'm just wanting to ask you to reflect on what you've learned. So think about you're walking through a beautiful forest, you're on your own, you're having a think, a gratitude moment where you're thinking about what you've learned through this extraordinary journey and particularly what you're learning now. What is the thing that stands out the most? Hmm. First of all, I was walking through a forest in New Zealand. It was very beautiful. There was <laughs> some very, very beautiful beech trees and uh, uh, and um, ratas around. I think the, I mean, yeah, the most, the thing that always, I just always come back to is relationship, is is people, the sense of family, the the connection between people, and what's possible if that trust and those different experiences are held commonly like the ability for collective action when we've invested in relationship rather than invested in the project management or the i don't know the the backbone organization of a collective impact venture like it's it's the relationship between people that's going to make something possible and also hold ourselves to account for making good decisions. So I think I'm like deeply inspired by the te, te ao Māori um, in New Zealand, the the Māori sense of, we call it uh, tanga, uh, which is uh, a sense of family. So we can share that with other people, you and I. Uh, we can share it with our, our, you know, our blood family. We can share it with our neighbours. We can share it with people that we're working with across different sectors to actually make something possible. But I think investing in that that work together to understand one another's story, to really hear where they're coming from, that's that's everything. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Walker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.